Welcome to the Oxford Undergraduate Law Podcast, where we discuss the law and its relationship with society. I'm Juliette. And I'm Rich, and we are your podcast editors. We will platform academics, practitioners, and experts from different backgrounds on this podcast. In today's episode, I will be speaking to Nisha Waller. Nisha is a final year PhD candidate in the Centre for Criminology at the University of Oxford and is a researcher at Charity Law Practice Appeal. Nisha's PhD research focuses on complicity law, commonly referred to as joint enterprise, and its relationship to the criminalization of young black men. Over the course of her doctorate, Nisha has visited a number of prisons in England, interviewing young black men convicted as secondary parties to murder. Her research is also informed by interviews with legal practitioners and the families of those convicted. As a starting point, could you tell us a bit about what complicity law and joint enterprise refer to? Yeah, so joint enterprise is, an, I guess, an umbrella term for uh, multiple ways in which more than one person can be convicted of the same offence. So this can be broken down into three categories. So there could be um, joint participation, where um, more than one person physically carries out the conduct um, and actually carries out the offence, and those people would be known as co-principals or joint principals. Um, and where it gets somewhat more complicated or controversial is when people who don't carry out the conduct element of the offence can also be held liable or uh, deemed complicit. Um, so you have what's sometimes referred to as basic um, accessorial liability, um, which refers to people who have uh, intentionally assisted or encouraged the offence, um, sometimes referred to as aiding or abetting. And then you have something which was dealt with um, in 2016 and no longer exists in this way, which is parasitic accessorial liability. I wanted to pick up on that decision in the 2016 case, the case called Jogi. Could you tell us a bit about what the law looked like pre-Jogi and what catalyzed the need for change? Yeah, so the law prior to the Jogi ruling, um, and in, it meant that an individual could be convicted on the basis of foresight. So if the jury believed that the defendant, although they didn't carry out the crime themselves, could have or foresaw the possibility that their co-defendant, the principal, might carry out that crime um, or would carry out that crime, they would also, the jury could also find them guilty. So the secondary party or the accessory could be convicted on the basis of foresight and not intent. So they didn't have to intend for that crime to take place. Um, and that typically was uh, occurred in cases like the parasitic accessorial liability where there was crime A and crime B. So the argument of the prosecutor would be you could have foreseen that in the course of a burglary your co-defendant might kill somebody if they were within the premises, for example. That foresight as a reason of fault was also used in cases that were more to, that were basic accessorial liability cases, so there wasn't crime A, crime B. So foresight basically became the standard in complicity cases um, and it was applied in that way for um, 30-ish years, which, um, yeah, and, and, and Jogi uh, dealt with that by 
changing the um, standard of fault from foresight to intent. So now we just have basic accessorial liability where um, the secondary party has to uh, intend to assist or encourage the crime. So what made the standard being foresight rather than intent so problematic and why did so many people advocate for this to be changed in the law? It's the, arguably the lowest fault standard that there has been in criminal law um, to be held liable for things like murder on the basis of your, your probable foresight. Um, how do you judge whether somebody could foresee somebody else's actions or not? Um, and so the, the, the key problem there as well was that the secondary party could be convicted based on foresight, but the principal, the person who carried out the crime, had to intend to carry out the crime, um, which also made not much sense at all. So, um, yeah, huge injustices um, resulting from that. And lots of people obviously have been campaigning for a long time before that, um, most notably Jengba, um, Joint Enterprise Not Guilty by Association, um, who campaigned tirelessly leading up to that judgment. And has Jogi been considered a successful case in terms of the changes that it brought about, or are there some persisting issues um, that still need to be addressed? Yeah, so what's what's really just sad about the, that is that lots of people saw it as a success and lots of people thought, you know, my family members coming home or people in prison thought maybe I'm going home. Um, I mean, the law was incorrectly applied in their case, um, yet all but one of those people are either still behind bars uh, serving what's often a life sentence um, or they've completed their sentence and haven't been released as a result of Jogi um, or even had their cases heard uh, at the Court of Appeal. Um, reason for that, in short, um, the law ultimately states that even though there's been a change in law, an individual has to prove that had the law been correctly applied in their trial, so the judge had the judge given the direction of intent rather than foresight, that the jury wouldn't have found them guilty. But it's almost impossible to make that judgment without a retrial. How do you how do you come to that conclusion without a retrial? And so it's a really high bar to meet, and it's only been met once um, in the case of John Crilly. Um, and so, yeah, we have potentially thousands of people still behind bars who were convicted under a law that has now been said to have, have been incorrect. And so looking at what Jogi actually sets out in terms of the test um, for contribution, it's, as you said, intention. Um, but a lot of people have spoken about how this still is very unclear in reality. Um, and that has kind of given the prosecution opportunity to adopt a very wide conception of complicity or joint enterprise. So how have you seen this play out um, in practice? Yeah, so this is another problem with the law and something that Jogi didn't address, um, is that the issues issues that are similar to, to pre-Jogi continue because the law is so vague even now. So we have... Although you have to intend to assist or encourage an offence now, which is, I guess, a higher fault standard, you assistance and encouragement isn't properly defined in law in that somebody's presence 
although it has to be deemed as supportive in some way, can be enough physical conduct to convict somebody um, of a, an offence that was carried out by somebody else. So I've um, interviewed lots of young men who are now serving life sentences, convicted to serve a time in custody that's longer than they've been alive. Um, many of them are 16 um, and a couple younger. Um, who were literally just at the scene when it occurred and others who weren't even at the scene but had a series of phone calls of which the content of that phone call is actually unknown but which the prosecution argued was them, you know, involved in the planning of the offence and therefore encouraging or assisting it in some way. And so the main problem with that in addition to the fact that assistance and encouragement is so vague and not, not properly defined, um, we also have that there's no requirement that the secondary party makes any substantial contribution to the offence. And so these are two interconnected issues. Um, by contribu- substantial contribution, I mean, there's no requirement that there is any kind of direct actual influence of that secondary party's conduct on the principal offender's behaviour. So they don't need to cause the um, principal offender to carry out the crime in any way. So they don't even have to make it much more likely that it actually happens. Um, And that kind of contradicts the very terms of assistance and encouragement, right? You think of encouragement, you think you're having an effect on something, you're encouraging something, but the law doesn't really require there to be any significant um, effect on the principal's conduct from the secondary party for them to be liable. Do you have any examples of things that you've seen in your experience from your research that you found really shocking to hear that that amounts to assistance or encouragement by law? Yeah, loads. It's, it's, it's hard to pinpoint now because you've asked me to be specific. But every time I've interviewed people, majority of the time I've been surprised as to how um, their conduct met a standard of assistance or encouragement. Um, <clears throat> I'll try to think of a specific case that I can draw on. Um, yeah, so I can speak about a specific case of a young man. Um, he was sat in the in the back of a car. Um, he, I interviewed him and his co-defendant, and his co-defendant was driving the car. And now this car didn't have any... Nobody in this car carried out the offence. There was another car that they were um, travelling with, in the other car, um, they had the other car had stopped as they had seen somebody coming out of a housing estate, and people had got out of the other car and chased these people back into the housing estate, which resulted in a fatality. Um, so the, the guy that I interviewed and his co-defendant remained in the other vehicle, um, and the really sad thing about this one was because he. The guy in the back of the the car that wasn't um, involved said he was asleep in the back of the car and he said he'd he'd smoked some weed and he was was falling asleep on the journey that they were taking. And um, I then interviewed his co-defendant who said, you know, my friend was convicted of murder for sleeping in the back of my car. And when he said that, I was just like, well, you know, I know that this happens, obviously, through the work that I do. Um, But it's like when it's said, it's put to you like that. Um, from two from two different people, um, yeah, it just goes to show that you can. It's quite easy to end up in in a situation where you're 
facing a life sentence. Um, and in no way did he contribute. He wasn't driving. He was in the back of a car. In no way, even if he wasn't asleep, as the prosecution would uh, claimed, um, he did not contribute to the offence in any way. So there seems to be such a low standard, despite the changes that were made in Jogi. What do the prosecution kind of propose as a justification for this? Are there some kind of cases that they outline or look, this is why we're doing that, this justifies the law being like this, and how does that actually map onto the reality that you and others have seen? Yeah, I think... I mean, it's possible. You could, it's possible to concede that somebody who's present at the scene of a crime was there for the purpose of encouraging it, right? Um, what you do with those people, I don't think is a life sentence in prison. Um, but my problem is, how on earth do you prove that beyond reasonable doubt that they were there for that purpose unless there is direct evidence of their, their purpose for being at that, in that place was to carry out violence? Um, and that's where prosecution case theory becomes really you know, important to them because they rely often quite heavily on their case theory. Um, because the law is so vague, it brings people into the scope of prosecution who haven't done very much, and therefore where there's very often limited circumstantial evidence um, against them, and the prosecution therefore have to rely on their case theory, which is often, you know, they're all part of a gang, therefore they all have the same intention. And that's why these cases are so racialized, because the gang is, as you know, a, a stereotype that is often applied to young black men who are assumed to be gang members. Yeah, I'd like to focus a bit more on that because this is what you're doing your research on and you've spoken before about how this gang narrative is being used as kind of a conviction maximizing prosecution strategy. Mm. So could you speak a bit more about what that means and from speaking not only to people who have been, you know, um, criminalized, but also speaking to practitioners what are some of the things that you've heard? Yeah, so one of my key arguments is that the gang, as a narrative in the courtroom, functions in some cases um, to address weaknesses in the prosecution's case, which come from the vagueness of the law. So the fact that the law allows people to be prosecuted who haven't done very much, um, I'd argue that me that means prosecutors need to rely more heavily on their case theory to convince the jury that you know, a person who merely was just at the scene or in a car at the scene was intending to assist or encourage the principal um, because the gang immediately evokes notions of criminality, notions of collective criminality. Um, but what I go, I go into much more detail in my, my research thesis, which speaks to the multiple ways in which the gang functions in the courtroom and, and, and what it actually does to get to construct the intent of the secondary party and so um, there are four ways that I say that it does that I, I say that it, it does it through um, establishing a sort of contextual backdrop and, and shared motive for the offence so kind of weaving a logical thread between the crime and the defendants by saying look they have a collective motive because this is their rival and therefore they all irrespective of their level of physical conduct wanted and intended for that crime to take place um, it also helps the prosecution to assume or argue that there was shared knowledge between the defendants. So if you're a gang, of course you knew. You must have known he was carrying a knife. You must have known of his intention to carry out this, this crime. Um, third, it, it constructs a, a criminal character of the, the defendant immediately by invoking that notion of the gang, um, which then portrays an individual who is 
not only um, willing but capable of intentionally assisting or encouraging serious violence. Um, and lastly, which is a bit more of a complex argument, but I'd argue that it's, it constructs a state of almost sort of near permanent premeditation or, or conditional, conditional, permanent conditional intent. Um, so kind of voiding any notion that the violence was spontaneous or um, that the individual was just merely present. They were, they were, they're always acting in a supportive capacity because they're part of that gang. So I'll give you an example. Um, there was a young man, I'll call him Shaquille for anonymity reasons, that I interviewed. And his case involved, um, it was him and his co-defendant. They were both, um, in his word, chilling on the block um, for, during the day. And they were approached by two other young people with knives. Now, that was accepted by the prosecution that they were approached by, by two young people with knives. Shaquille didn't have a knife on him, but his co-defendant had a knife. Um, and Shaquille and his co-defendant obviously fought back, and that led to a fatality. So um, Shaquille's co-defendant caused the fatality. Um, and Shaquille and his co-defendant, despite being approached first by other people, um, self-defence wasn't um, accepted as a defence, and they were charged with murder, not even manslaughter, they were charged with murder. Um, huge issues with that, but um, the jury found Shaquille guilty of manslaughter, which, which goes to show that he probably should have, at the, at the very most, been charged with manslaughter, um, which I can't even agree with. Um, but it goes to show how, because during that, that case, the prosecution argued that he wasn't just chilling on the block innocently. He was chilling on the block expecting the arrival of his rivals, expecting his rivals to appear because that's what he did on a day-to-day -day basis, you know? Um, and so they invoked this notion of gangs and rivalry to suggest that it wasn't spontaneous. You weren't just attacked. You, you know that that's your purpose for chilling on the block is to wait for your rivals to appear. And so just by merely existing in his friend's neighbourhood, and that happening to him, um, the prosecution invoked that he was, you know, these were two two gangs um, that had ongoing rivalries and therefore it can't be spontaneous. You're always willing to act in a supportive capacity should violence erupt in this way. It seems almost as if it's portraying these young people as being like predisposed to violence mm. in some kind of way, in some distinct way. Yeah. So can you speak a bit more about if what specific appeals, what specific examples or evidence will be used by the prosecution? Yeah, um, to go back to that case, uh, one thing that was used in that case was reference to music lyrics that were on one of the defendant's phones. Um, now, actually, what's really interesting in that case is that the judge didn't allow the lyrics in. Not the, He didn't allow in the actual lyrics, but he allowed the prosecution to let the jury know that there were violent lyrics on their phone, like rap lyrics. Um, and rap music or drill specifically, drill music is features heavily in, in many of these cases as an indicator of gang ties or gang affiliation. Often people who are just merely in a music video, not actually rapping themselves, are um, sort of accused of having gang ties or gang affiliations because they're in these videos. Um, and yeah, ultimately in the courtroom, music well drill and rap although it's an art form is often taken at face value and you have um 
prosecutors arguing that they are almost think you know confessions within music um and are often ignorant to the violent conventions of drill because drill music it's conventional for lyrics to be violent right like you'll have lyrics um that are likely to reflect a violent incident that takes place on the streets um but those lyrics are reused or and um you'll see the you'll see lyrics that that look pretty much the same in all different drill tracks right um there was another guy i'll call him simeon that i interviewed he had his drill lyrics used at, at his trial as part of the prosecution's claim that his drill music group was a gang um and the prosecutor admitted had uh, attempted to adduce lyrics that said something along the lines of a hop out the whip and stab him or something like that um and that is literally what happened in his case, right? He Somebody got out of the car, not him. He was inside the car and stabbed a person. But it turned out these lyrics were written two years prior to the incident. So it just goes to show how easy it is to attach drill lyrics to an actual violent incident and, and claim that they're referencing that incident. So, yeah, the I, I'd say prosecutors and judges are not awake enough to the the conventions of drill music and the fact that it does rely on persona exaggeration myth making um and it's an art form it's just not given legitimacy in the same way as other art forms um in my view because it's a black musical genre so how is it even that the kind of prosecution is able to kind of get their hands on this information or why do they rely on um music to build a case against um, defendants yeah, there is increasingly more consciousness amongst lawyers and I think judges as well as to the kind of prejudicial nature of of this type of evidence, particularly music, drill music. Um, but it's still happening. Um, and we need to think about the broader picture, broader policy, um, because that's the reason it's it's coming in. That's the reason the police are presenting it to the prosecution, to the CPS, as part of their package of evidence. Um, serious violence amongst young people. Um, we never really look at the structural root causes of it. And sadly, instead, we often blame things like culture um, because it's a scapegoat for government. The government haven't got to do um, anything about austerity or the closure of youth youth services, the, the cuts to funding for youth services. Um, and so they blame gangs, I say that colloquially, and they blame drill. Um, and so what's, what we've seen over the last few years is the kind of proliferation of uh, initiatives in policing that focus on um, monitoring young people's social media and specifically YouTube and drill music videos. They now have officers known as trusted flaggers who kind of flag drill music videos to get them removed from from youtube um, and other platforms but also they now have um specific operations they've got an operation called um well a project called project alpha which involves a, which is the met police project um that received a significant amount of home office funding um launched in 2019 where it's ultimately a unit of officers who scour social media for things like this um, and what's happening is they're just collating lots of data on predominantly young black men 
that can later be used as evidence in, in a prosecution case. Um, within that, they have um, another operation, Operation Domain, which is um, a Met Police catalogue of what they say is gang-related drill music, uh, gang-related music. Um, and I think they claim not to not to be keeping this as potential evidence, but ultimately it's led to, I think, many, many records that um, have actually been used in criminal trials. Um, and then they also have a Project Insight, which trains officers to give evidence on gangs and drill music. Um, and I've heard um, anecdotally from colleagues that, are, that work in the courts that this is a kind of very short, less than a week's course um, that these officers go on. I'm not sure if that's directly linked to Project Insight, but I've heard from um, barristers in court who have said, you know, officers giving evidence have said they've been on a week-long course and now are giving expert evidence on drill music and decoding it. Um, and yeah, it's really problematic because the police ultimately are... Like, policing black young black men is almost become embedded into policy just because there's this policy, policy shift towards holding drill um, accountable for serious violence. Um, and as we know, it's predominantly young black men who are involved in producing um, or who are the artists and therefore they are facing the consequences um, and in some cases, you know, life, completely life-altering consequences as a result of that. Um, but bigger than that, policing contributes hugely to the prosecution's ability to, to present this gang narrative at trial because every contact with the police leaves a trace and we know that young black men are more likely to encounter the police through stop and search and other measures. Um, and the recent Casey review literally acknowledged that every contact with the police leaves a trace, every contact is documented and the police build their intelligence through stop and searches. Um, and so you have some of the young men, when I was talking to them, were so shocked when a police officer got on the stand and said, look, this is such and such, pointing at the defendant, pointing at him, saying, I've known him for X amount of years, he's from this area which is affiliated with this such and such gang, and he is known to the gang's unit. Um, and they're shocked because they're like, this isn't me you're describing. Who, who, how do you even know me? I've never seen you in my life. Um, and so black communities have almost been turned into states of surveillance because of this policy focus on gangs and because gangs have been identified as a particular problem in black communities. Um, but the statistics don't match up. So it's important to note that, um, for example, on the Metropolitan Police's gangs matrix, which has now been ruled unlawful, 80% of the people on it were black. But that's 80% of um, serious youth violence wasn't carried out by black people, right? So there's a, a huge, huge, huge mismatch there. And serious violence has become so racialized um, that it's almost seen as an explicitly black issue. Um, and therefore, black communities are bearing the brunt of gangs policing and anything to do with offences that involve knives. Um, so every initiative that is designed to curtail gangs or... Um, knife-related violence are going to disproportionately impact young black men, um, irrespective of whether they are involved in any criminal activity. So it seems that going back to, you know, even addressing the problems with joint enterprise, 
from what you've been speaking at, it seems that it can't just be approached through looking at the law on paper, making some changes, expanding a test, or even making that more clear. It seems that there need to be you know, much wider changes in terms of law and policing in general. So um, what are some things that you have heard, some proposals for change that is necessary on a wide scale as well as like in a narrower scale in the joint enterprise context? Changing the law could help to some degree, right? So we could narrow the law and we could set a reasonable test for contribution. And I think that would force prosecutors to be more specific about who did what. It would make them uh, less able to rely on their case theory as heavily. Um, they'd actually have to specify what each individual did and how they contributed to the offence for them to get over their burden of proof, um, which I think might help, might um, limit the use of gang evidence or its infl- or its impact, because the bar for um, bringing somebody into the scope of prosecution would be narrower. However, joint enterprise is just one element of our criminal justice system um, in which ra- systemic racism manifests. Um, and so it's much, much bigger than, than joint enterprise. Um, I think we need to start reframing violence. Like one of the reasons why joint enterprise is applied in such a disproportionate way is because, as I, as I previously said, you know, violence is, is looked at as an, as a, violence amongst young people in particular is looked at as through the lens of race. And we don't talk about other forms of violence. So, for example, we've had knife crime, which has been, you know, almost become synonymous with the notion of gangs and um, looked at through the lens of, of race. Um, yet knives are the most commonly used weapon in intimate partner homicides. However, knife crime, if you want to call it that, has only become a subject of public concern and political outrage when it involves young black people on the street um it's not become agenda nobody's nobody's there's no moral panic about it being a gendered phenomenon around domestic violence even though it is the most commonly used weapon in, in domestic violence cases and so we've almost invisibilized certain forms of violence because we folk because society is so focused on violence as a race problem um and we also don't talk about state violence in these discussions. We don't talk about violence carried out by the state. Um, and so I think it's, it, we require a whole shift in society's thinking around violence and, and what that looks like and harm and what that looks like and how we respond to it. Um, why are we responding to harm with more harm? You know, like with weight, with, 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 with harm that is like we're putting... I'll give you, I'll talk about a case briefly, but it's not a joint enterprise case, it's a conspiracy to murder case, but it has all the hallmarks of prosecution case theory in a joint enterprise case. Um, There were 10 boys convicted in Manchester of conspiracy to murder and conspiracy to GBH on the basis largely of uh, a group chat. So no murder was carried out um, and they were grieving the loss of their friend who was murdered and in this chat there was references made to what the prosecution claim was chats about getting revenge um and despite the large majority of them not carrying out any harm at all um they were given a sentence of combined i can't i don't know off the top of my head but it's over 100 years and so 
we're responding to young people who have experienced some of the most traumatic things, like losing a friend, with more harm, you know? Even in cases where nobody died, you know? Um, where is the good in that? Like, what are we trying to achieve? We are... I was with my friend who's a barrister the other day and I asked her to, to tell me what a KC a senior barrister would, would get on a, you know, a typical case, like a murder case, like a joint enterprise case, um, for a trial that's about, you know, six, seven weeks long, something like, as lots of these are. Um, and it was about £80,000. That's one KC. So if you've got ten defendants, they each have a KC, a junior barrister and solicitor and then you've got the prosecution I can't even figure out how much money it is but it's millions you know it ends up being millions what's going into that and they're all remanded in custody for the time of their trial what does it cost to keep somebody in prison for a year hundreds of thousands so it's it's unfathomable how we can justify responding to people who haven't carried out any violence um in this way when that money could be diverted into youth services who could respond to the harm that happened in the first place particularly in the case of the the 10 boys in manchester it's it's makes absolutely no sense the final question i was wondering if you could speak a bit about what you think from your experience speaking to um, people criminalized under joint enterprise um what accountability and responsibility actually looks like and what it should look like um, as interpreted by the law yeah i think firstly i should say that i think there are a lot of people in prison right now who are not responsible at all um who are convicted as a secondary party um under joint enterprise um and i think that's because of the vagueness of the law firstly so it allows people into to be prosecuted who who actually aren't responsible um in some cases um And look, I, I, I do get some people, I have had some people say to me, you know, okay, I, I think I, I take responsibility um, for doing this, but I didn't intend for the person to carry out murder or any serious harm. Um, and so, for example, uh, there's a young guy who I'll call Ryan, who went to the scene because he, he knew there was going to be a fight um, and he didn't think it was going to escalate and at the point that the knife was pulled he was actually on the floor um, as he had been pushed over and didn't witness the stabbing take place but he took some responsibility for it he took some responsibility for what happened but he sat doing a life sentence when he didn't intend for anyone to be seriously injured or, or to die um, and so the sentences are so d disproportionate to, to what the person's actually done and intended to happen um, they are, if they are convicted of murder under joint enterprise, they will receive a life sentence. And as I said at the beginning, a lot of them are convicted for a time in custody that's, that's longer than they've been on the planet, um, which to me is absolutely absurd for somebody who's not carried out violence. Um, I could argue that it's absurd to put any young person in prison for that long, irrespective of what they've done. It doesn't solve anything. Um, and I think we need to have a more restorative justice approach to... Um, how we respond to harm in this way and kind of people, those who are harmed um, by crime um, and those responsible for the harm um, and support them in 
um, repairing that harm, communicating, um, but involving everyone affected um, in that process. And I think it's, it's almost become alien to us to think about responding to harm or crime in that way um, because our justice system just doesn't embody those principles at all. Um, and it's interesting because some of the young people and their families that I've spoken to who, who, who are convicted under joint enterprise have said that the victim's family have approached them and said, you know, look, I know it wasn't your son, and have expressed sympathy. And this, um, this doesn't happen in all cases. In a lot of cases, the victim's family do want all of the um, defendants to be convicted, um, but it has happened um, because they recognise that in some cases it could have been their son on the other side, right? Um, and I always remember somebody I interviewed telling me in court that the victim's mother stood up and said that it could have been her son and um, it, it could have been the other way around and expressed sympathy um, to the defendants for that. There's also been um, a young man I interviewed who said that the um, victim's family were coming to, to visit him. Um, and so, yeah, I guess we don't do any, we don't prevent any future harm by putting 10 people in prison for, for one crime for decades. Um, in fact, we do the opposite. We're sending them to places that are not therapeutic in any way and don't allow them to recover from the trauma that they've probably experienced as well. Um, and so, and, and the, the harm extends beyond the individuals as well, it extends to their families. So we take away people from more families for a period in which it's long enough for them to not be sure that they'll still be alive when they come out. For a period of which many people now know they won't ever get grandchildren or the people inside won't might not be able to have children um you know it's 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 devastating and it predominantly is happening to young black people and that's why lots of the people i've i've interviewed refer to it as um you know being kidnapped by the slave master because i had I had a guy called sean not his real name who said you know it's it's a cheat code for the police to take us, sweep us all off the streets, all the black kids they want off the streets. Um, and it really is. The CPS data that was just released indicates that you're 16 times more likely to be prosecuted under joint enterprise if you're black. Um, and so the law on paper isn't racist. If you read it out, you know, if you assist or encourage a crime, most people might think that sounds reasonable. Um, but when you actually look at how it's applied in our courts, and sit and watch a full trial, I think most people's jaws would drop at the kind of farce that it is at times um, and how we're sending so many people to prison for one crime and so many people who had very little to do with it, if nothing at all. Yeah, thank you so much for that and thank you for sketching a very needed picture of like the reality of how this law is applied. So yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. Before ending, I wanted to link some online resources where you can find out more about the work that organizations are doing to combat the issues discussed. In the description, Jengba's website is linked alongside some key reports on joint enterprise. The link to Appeal, which is the charity that Nisha works part of, is also linked if you're interested in wider criminal justice issues.